because red is long. I really like the color red, and so often in the church we shy away from the color red, and so it's really awesome when you have all the red out there, but even more so than the color red, because it's an exciting color, it's actually an exciting time, because if we had to pick a birthday for the church, it would be Pentecost. Why? Well, we heard the story earlier how uh, Pentecost is all about uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, descending down on the disciples. When Jesus left his disciples, after he was resurrected and returned to them, he promised them a helper is coming. And then that helper was the Holy Spirit. And so on the day of Pentecost, that's when the Spirit arrives in miraculous form. And so that is the birth of the church. At that moment is when things Changed and when the church as we know it began to shape and take form. So if you celebrate a birthday, this is the birthday to celebrate, the birthday of the church. And so happy Pentecost to everybody here. Um, we're glad that you're here. Uh, in case we haven't met, my name is Patrick Cherry. I'm the pastor here at Christ the Word. And we are in the middle, actually reaching the tail end of a series we've been doing since Easter. And this series have been, is, is called The Way to Life. When Jesus talked about life, he, he said that he came to bring life so that we could have it and have it abundantly. But so often when we read that passage, we think that just means about eternal life, the Father. Which, don't get me wrong, eternal life is a great thing to have. It's a gift from God. It's a grace of God that is given to believers. But it's not just about this life to come. This abundant life Jesus speaks about is right here and now. We can have abundant life now, here on earth. And so we've been discussing how do we have this abundant life? How do we draw closer to Jesus so that we experience this wellspring of life? And one of the ways that we can do that is through spiritual disciplines. They're ancient practices that do not save us in themselves, but these practices help draw us closer into the presence of the one who does save, Jesus. Some have been familiar, perhaps. Some, maybe not so much. Uh, we discussed on Easter the spiritual discipline of worship. And how worship is not something we just do on a Sunday morning or for a few hours, one day a week, a couple days a week. That worship is actually a lifestyle. It's a focus. You can worship while you're at the grocery store. You can worship at work. You can worship out in your yard. Talking to a neighbor. You can worship any time if you draw your attention to God through what we say and we do. And then we talked about prayer. Then after prayer, we talked about fasting. Then we discussed meditation. Then we discussed what was the difference between what we would call Christian meditation that's spoken about in the Bible and meditation as people often think about it. It's more of an Eastern practice that there's actually some significant difference between the two. Then we talked about celebration. That celebration is an act of, of, of worship, as a spiritual discipline. And we talked about solitude, getting all, all alone. This past Sunday on Memorial Day weekend, uh, we celebrated on our own service. And service is a discipline. That as we turn our eyes toward the things of God and the things that God loves, that draws us closer into his presence. And then this Sunday, we are going to discuss submission topic I'm sure we all love to talk about. We talk about it all the time, don't you? Submission? Hmm. But before we go any further, we're going to pray. I normally pray before a sermon. I think it's important. But this Sunday we're going to do a little different. You're going to pray with me. And this is how 
we are going to pray. We're going to pray using uh, song lyrics. Uh, Keith, if you wouldn't mind, scroll through them as we do them. Okay. Uh, this is Spirit of the Living God. Have you heard that song before? Mm -hmm. I'm going to have you sing it with me. And this is going to be our opening prayer. So let us pray. Spirit of the living God, all afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, all afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, Not give it away. 
Who here wants to give away whatever authority you have, whatever power you have, whatever control? Just saying, oh, yeah, 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 just, just take it. Because what do we fear is going to happen when we do that? You're going to get walked all over, get in trouble. You're going to do it wrong. I mean, you hear it in even phrases that are kind of talking about submission, but not so much, you know, nice guys to the schlaps. You know, if you want to you move forward in life, you've got you've to have some gumption. You've got to move forward. You've got to go for what you want. You've got to show power and authority. You show them who's boss. Isn't that what society teaches us? Isn't that how we're supposed to move forward? And yet, here, on this eighth week of looking at spiritual disciplines, we're going to look, well, I didn't even change the title there, submission. Not solitude anymore, <laughs> submission. I didn't submit to the <laughs> Submission is what we are going to discuss. And now, as we talk about this topic that may be a little uncomfortable and is not something we really desire, let's keep in mind an important point about spiritual disciplines as we discuss them. And the, the, the point is this. The purpose of spiritual disciplines is freedom. Our aim is freedom, not the discipline. So let's keep that in mind. Spiritual discipline is about freedom, which to some may seem counterintuitive. You say, you say discipline, I start thinking of school and rules and regulations, and you have to follow this. But you know what? That's not what the spiritual disciplines are about. Jesus came not to give us rules, but to give us life and life abundant. Abundant life speaks to a great freedom. Jesus is the way to this abundant life. Jesus is trying to give us freedom. Because so often when we think we are free, we are actually bound to something else entirely. And spiritual disciplines are about freeing us up to this abundant life of Jesus. I'm continually amazed at all the self-help books that are out. Anybody ever browse the shelf of the self-help <coughs> aisle? I mean, it's a growing aisle. You go to Barnes and Noble. I mean, it's just it expounds. There's self-help for everything. And you go if you want to, if you want to get cracked up, just go read some of the titles. I mean, some of the titles alone are hilarious. But people spend so many hours reading these self-help books, and I'm and I'm not against wanting to better yourself. I think that's something we should all want to do. But I do believe that there's a lot of misguidance. And all of these articles and books and thoughts about self-help. Because it really perpetuates this modern view that to be happy, you have to not be concerned about others and just pursue what you want. Because isn't that a lot of what the self-help gospel, and I use gospel in quotes because it's not really good news. The self-help gospel is you want to be happy, then you pursue it. You pursue what you want. And don't be concerned about other people. You do what you want. It's all about finding peace and serenity within yourself. It's all about yourself. Which, of course, our culture really eats up. We're a pretty self-absorbed culture. Would you agree with that? Am I really off base in saying that? We like ourselves. We want things the best for ourselves. Oftentimes when we vote in our democracy, we're voting for what's best for me. 
way we have to handle our money, what I want. And so this line of thinking in self-help is really called a self-actualization. It's looking within yourself, finding that peace, and then making it happen. You see people act that way? Just if you believe enough, if you, if you act it out, it's just it's going to happen. You will make it a reality, this self-actualization. And it seems on the surface that it's quite empowering. I mean, it would be empowering for someone to say, you can do it. If you just believe enough, you can do it. But is that the truth? Let's consider Jesus' words. From our passage earlier in Matthew, in chapter 16, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Does that seem like the same message of this self-help gospel? Does it? Is Jesus saying, well, if you just believe hard enough, it's going to happen? It's all within you. You can do it. Shoot for the stars. It's not what Jesus is saying, is it? In fact, his message is quite the opposite. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself. You have to deny your own desires, your own wants. You have to deny that and submit to Jesus. Okay, well then, how, did, how, how, how does that bring us freedom? That doesn't seem, you know, just, well, just submit and, and give up everything you want. Because you're not going to be happy anyway, you know? Just, I mean, is that what Jesus is saying? I think Jesus sums it up pretty well in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What will it profit a man or a woman if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, your self-serving, self-actualization might get you what you want. It may actually get you what you want. But it doesn't necessarily lead to abundant life. So let's look at this point. Our happiness is not dependent upon getting what we want. Our happiness is not dependent upon getting what we want. Have you ever received something you want and actually didn't make you happy? Anybody been there? Or maybe it makes you happy for a moment, and then you begin to regret it. You know, a lot of fast food is that way. It's really good at first. About an hour later, you're really regretting it. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. I really shouldn't have done that. I'll think better next time than you begin. Momentary happiness. There's lots of things in life give you a rush right from the beginning, but don't necessarily bring you happiness. Doing your own thing on your own terms might help get you what you came here for. But what kind of person are you going to be at the other end of that? Are you 100% sure 
that what you want is the best thing for you? Isn't that a fair question? Now, I, many of us, especially the older we get, we've had to learn this hard lesson. And what you want isn't always what's best for you. We start out as, out as children wanting all of these things, and our parents keep telling us, no, 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 no. And we feel like that's the only word they ever say. And I've said, I'm never going to do that. But what am I doing? No, 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 don't do that. No, we're not having candy for dinner. No, we're not doing that. It's just that it's, it's not really what you, what you need. You may want it. It's not what's best for you. And we start to temper that a little bit as adults, but there's still things. There's still things that we pursue. But let's discuss what we're really talking about here. We're talking about our wants. We're even, we can even talk about our pride and how our pride won't let us submit. And we can talk about this self-actualization, this kind of self-help gospel. But what we're really talking about here is control. Who here wants to give up control? Do you like being out of control? Chances are you don't really like being out of control. So many things we do in our life is pursuing more control. More control over the people around us. More control over our situation. More control over our finances. More control over our places where we live. More control, more control, more control. In fact, that's why smartphones and all these devices really tap into us because then it gives us even more control. I'm controlling the screens from my iPad right here. I can look at Keith and go change the slide. And I control him <laughs> because I have the microphone. It's great. More control. But does our control always lead to good results? Can you think of some examples where your control led to really bad results? Anybody have a story there? A very brief story you can want to share? Any moments where your control led to a bad situation? When Keith's driving somewhere where we don't know where he's going, he gets distracted. When Keith's driving somewhere, <laughs> Keith, we're all throwing you under the bus. Wow. <laughs> Keith's official title title of church is Church Whipping Boy. <laughs> well, I was sharing with some of you beforehand that uh, uh, that working on some projects at home and and things didn't go as I had expected, and so my dad ends up coming down to help me with these projects because I thought I had it all under control. I have plenty of time. I got the weekend. I've got the house to myself. My family's out visiting my in-laws, and you know this is the time to do it. And I left plenty of time. It wasn't plenty of time. And really starting to wonder, maybe I shouldn't have done this project at all because it's not going the way I anticipated. I thought I had complete control, but complete control and lack of knowledge are really bad <laughs> Sometimes the worst thing we can do to something or someone is to try to control it. Sometimes the worst thing we can do to something or someone is to try to control it or them. Too much control stifles creativity and imagination. Have you seen that? That's one of the biggest arguments in our school. Sometimes we're so rigid, especially when we're teaching to the test. I'm not trying to get political here, but are we stifling creativity when we don't allow for some freedom of thought? 
Control often means that we're less flexible and things toward things that we did not plan for. Because is anybody here capable of planning for every single contingency? Maybe you try, but are you able to actually plan for every single contingency? I try so often, but it's always the thing I didn't plan for that happens. I've always found it interesting and a bit frustrating as you view the statistics of accidents, of drunk driving accidents. Isn't it interesting that in drunk driving accidents, so often the drunk driver is the one that leaves unscathed with very few injuries, while the victims of that crash that didn't start it end up on a stretcher in the hospital or worse. And why is that? Because the drunk driver is so impaired that their reaction time is abysmal, and so they aren't able to react to the accident, so when the car hits, they just go with the flow like a rag doll. And because they just go with the flow like a rag doll, they don't get hurt as the one who sees it coming and freezes up. It makes me think of back when I was in elementary school, I was rollerblading in our neighborhood. And I just got done jumping cracks on a hill, going downhill, and I'm going uphill. My mom is at the neighbor's house. She turns and says, hey, Patrick. And I turned away. Hey, Mom. And I didn't see a rock. Hit the rock. And then what do I do as I'm going down? I put that arm out. I knew it was coming. Put my arm out to brace myself. Probably the worst thing I could do. Doing that snapped my collarbone. If I had not done that, I probably would have ended up with a bruise, maybe a little cut, but I probably wouldn't have broken a bone if I had just gone with the ball. That wasn't running through my mind. See, when you're trying to control things sometimes, they hurt. And you see this in, in certain martial art forms. They're really beautiful how they don't fight back, but they channel energy that's set toward them. You ever get on this shoulder, then you go this way. You just kind of go with the flow. It's not about controlling it, it's about going with it. Does our control stifle us at times? And we just heard on the screens of that video the story of Pentecost in Acts 2, where the Spirit comes down and descends upon the disciples, and it's, it's amazing, it's, it's supernatural. I mean, tongues of fire that look like we're over the heads of the disciples, and suddenly they're speaking all different languages all at the same time to people there who speak different languages. They're understanding each other. And then they're hearing the good news of Jesus in a life-changing way. Things changing. But do you think that good news came from the disciples' control? Or were they yielding to the Spirit of God? Who was in and what was the outcome? Well, we turn to verse 46 in Acts 2. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day, they were growing. Isn't that great? That's good news. That's wonderful. But sometimes I wonder why we don't see this happening in a lot of our churches today. Do we see us 
adding to our numbers. I'm probably not speaking in tongues right now. Last time I checked, I'm just speaking in English. It'd be really cool if we had some pyrotechnics and I had a flame over my head. But I don't have it. This crazy supernatural stuff, why? Why is this power, this life-altering intervention of God not happen more often? Why does it feel, feel so rare to us? Because it does happen at times, let's be fair. God shows up in miraculous ways, but why is it so rare? Well, I may not have an answer, but I do have a theory. My theory is that I believe our attempts of controlling God have affected our ability and made us unable to connect deeply with God. How often do we try to control God? Instead of allowing God, or as Carrie Underwood would say, Jesus, take me. Why do we feel we have to be in control? Is that control hindering us? Is our orderly way of doing things leaving our mind in a box and unable to connect with the Holy Spirit who can't be put in a box? God can't be put in a box, can't be confined in our own little neat little packet that we just shove in our pocket. But we still try. So perhaps we could change Jesus' words a little bit say that anyone who tries to control God will lose control. And anyone who submits to God's plan, God's timing, God's will, will find their life fulfilled. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, deny yourself and take up my cross. That's submission. That's what Jesus is talking about. Letting go of the things that put me before you. Letting go of the things, letting go of the need to be right. You feel like you need to be right. Letting go of the need to be, to have it my way all the time. Have it your way. It's a slogan. Does it always have to be your way? Letting go of the need to prove a point. Are you someone who has to always prove a point? or have the last word. But let's be fair, submission does have some boundaries of sorts. Because I think why submission has received such a bad taste in our mouth and a bad reputation, shall we say, in society is because there's a lot of people who've abused submission. People who don't have your best interest in mind forcing you to submit to their authority and then seeing how bad it goes. But let's talk about this idea of self-denial first. When Jesus says, deny yourself, when Jesus says, deny yourself, he is not saying, hate yourself. Because there are some people who would say that, well, you're, that's, not, that's not a good teaching. Why would you hate yourself? You're supposed to hate yourself? I mean, people do this and, and act it out and, and cutting themselves. There's disorders that do that. Self-mutilation. And that's a way of showing that you kind of you hate yourself. It's a, it's a cry for help. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Don't hate yourself. It's not about self-contempt. Because there's a difference between self-denial and self-contempt. Self-contempt claims that you have no worth. And even if you do have worth, 
You should reject it. Self-denial declares that we have infinite worth and shows us how to realize it. But you see, self-denial is pointing us to your self-worth isn't found just within yourself. Your self-worth is found in another. Deny yourself and take up my cross. This is where you find abundant life. This is where you find that you're really looking at it. So self-denial is different from self-contempt. Let's talk a little bit about pride. Many of us have foolish pride. And there's a difference between foolish pride and, let's say, resolute submission. You can work with pride. You can sing with pride. You can pray with pride. And that's okay, because this is one of those words that we tend to use in different ways. It's okay to have pride in your work. To have pride in your family. But there's a difference between foolish pride and that kind of pride. See, foolish pride is when we believe our reputation is more important than anything else. It's a self-centered thing. Foolish pride is being unwilling to make a mistake. Foolish pride is unwilling to back down just to prove a point. It's that kind of pride that we should set aside and deny so that we can take up the cross of Christ. It would also be helpful to know when should we submit? Do we always submit? Well, there are limits to submission. As we mentioned, there's people who have abused it. I mean, let's, let's look at Scripture. In Scripture, the Romans and the Jewish authorities told the early church to stop telling the world about Jesus. Did the church submit to them and listen? We're all sitting here because they chose not to. They said, too bad, we are going to tell people about Jesus. So they didn't submit. When someone is using submission to destroy or to harm or to undermine Christ, that is not the submission we're called. But if our submission elevates Christ, that is the submission we're called. That's when we deny ourselves to take up the cross of Christ. So resolute submission is following Jesus' model of self-denial. Without self-hatred, without self-contempt. We look at this last point. Submission is actively looking to the interests of others. Submission is waiting for God. That's the submission we're talking about. It's a beautiful thing when we see soul holy submission happening. We're called in our marriages to submit to one another. Yes, there are times the husband submits to the wife, just as there are times the wife submits to the husband. We love to point out the passage, you know, wives, submit to your husbands. There's some other parts after that. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did Christ do for the church? He died for the church. He suffered for the church. There's self-denial there to lift up the church. That's how these relationships work. We submit to one another. Just as Jesus submitted to the Father, the church, we submit to the love of God. 
So as we close, I want you to consider these questions. As we keep this wonderful day of Pentecost in mind, the Holy Spirit, what areas of your life do you have too tight a grip and need to let go and loosen up? What things are you stifling because you're just so rigidly holding on to? Who are the people you should be considering instead of just pursuing your own wants, your own desires? And finally, how is God seeking to invite you into the freedom of submission? It's not an oxymoron. How is God inviting you to be in the freedom of submission that gives you this abundant life that Jesus promises? Let us go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for your scriptures, for the birth of your church. And we pray that as we celebrate this Pentecost, even after we leave this place today, that your spirit would be upon us and that you would let us witness the beauty of your work and your power surrounding us. Let us not forget your deep love for us that is life-changing, life-rearranging, life-resurrecting. We pray all of this.